morning. So as we uh, have mentioned a couple times about this idea of identity, who we are, what do we identify with? Sometimes we have identity uh, thrust upon us. I'm getting used to the idea that my new identity in starting sometime in March will be grandpa. I'll have this new identity. And I like the idea of having a grandchild. I don't like the idea of being a grandpa. So I'm, I'm conflicted. By, so some, sometimes we have an identity thrust upon us. Sometimes we choose our identity. You know, uh, I remember when I was a little kid, I don't know, third grade, this is based on a true story because, you know, I'm a grandpa and so I can't remember everything. But uh, third grade, fourth grade, we lived in San Antonio, Texas, and we were coming back to California, to live in California, and maybe it was my birthday, Christmas, my parents were going to get me a jacket, and they said, do you want a Rams jacket or a Cowboys jacket? You're a Cowboys fan, you live in Texas, but you're going back to California. Who will you identify with? I think, I can't remember for sure, I think I chose the Rams, I chose poorly. But eventually I came around and re-identified myself as a Cowboys fan. But I'm back to the Rams, so you can sometimes switch back and forth with identities. But my point sort of is, when we choose an identity, there are consequences to that choice. We're going to find out that today in, uh, in Scripture, the consequences of our choice to identify with God or to identify with sin. There are consequences there, and there are consequences when you choose uh, a sport team to identify with as well. Uh, Mark Easter, my friend back there, he's identifying with the Eagles this year and all years, and great consequences, right? Hey, uh, as a, I identify myself as a Cowboys fan, and I feel kind of depressed today. As the Super Bowl comes... No Cowboys. There's Eagles there. And I'm, I'm going to be rooting for the Eagles because I totally identify as a Patriot hater. So, you see, there's, there's all kinds of identify, identification. But there are consequences. And, and we're going to see those consequences today. If you have a Bible and would like to join us, we're in Romans chapter 6. We're going through the book of Romans. Now, last week in verses uh, 14 through 16, Paul began to using this concept of, of physical slavery to illustrate spiritual slavery. We learn that in the Roman Empire, uh, human physical slavery was very common. And that there were two kinds of slavery. A person could be captured, most likely from some foreign land, and, and brought back to Rome or nearby place and forced into slavery. Or a person, due to, the, due to their own poverty, uh, could willingly sell themselves into slavery. I, I'm starving, I need to eat, I find someone, I sell myself into slavery, and they provide my, a place to sleep and food. And it's the second kind of willing slavery, willing identification, if you will, that Paul uses to illustrate spiritual slavery. In Romans 6.16, he writes, do, not, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slaves... You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Put simply, Paul's saying that everyone is either a slave to sin or a slave to God. Either sin or God will be your master. And being a slave means you must obey your master. A slavery to sin means you obey sin. Slavery to God means you obey God. And the choice is yours. 
who you present yourselves to uh, for obedience determines who your master is. And you might say, well, I won't present myself to anyone, to God or to sin. But the reality is, if you're not obeying God, then you are, by definition, disobeying God and therefore serving or obeying sin. You may think you're serving yourself or even others, but if you're not presenting yourselves to God as obedient slaves, then you are presenting yourself to sin. If God isn't your master, then sin is. Now last week, we began to see the consequences of those of, of who you identify with, of who you willingly obey, of who's your master. Slavery to God, the, uh, verse 16 says, leads to righteousness. Paul will expand on this idea of righteousness in verses 18 and 19. But slavery to sin leads to death. Now, I don't think I did a great job explaining what Paul means by slavery to sin leads to death last week. And, and this is important for us to understand as we move forward in the book of Romans. This is, this is a concept we need to, to grasp. So let me give it another shot today. Let's revisit Romans 6.16 and uh, slavery to sin. I want us to see that slavery to God means we are not slaves to sin. In the same way, if you're not a slave to God, you're a slave to sin. Well, if you are a slave to God, you are not a slave to sin. We need to understand that in Romans 6.16, Paul is, is stating a principle, a truth that applies across the board to all people. Everyone is a slave to either God or sin. And if you're a slave to sin, then that leads to death. And death here refers to both physical death and eternal death, to separation from God. However, what I failed to emphasize last week was that a Christian, a person who's been saved by grace through faith, and, and that we, we, let me emphasize that there. We're talking this side of salvation today, for the most part. I'm not t- telling you how to get saved. You've been saved by grace through faith. It's a work of God, not of, your own, not of yourself. It's a gift. But then after that, there are some things that need to take place. And this death refers to both eternal death and eternal separation from God. But what I failed to emphasize is that a Christian, even though they will sin, he or she cannot be enslaved to sin and therefore will not experience eternal death. Let me say that again. A Christian will sin. Amen. Sorry. But he or she cannot be enslaved to sin, and therefore will not experience eternal death. The Apostle John makes this very clear. He writes uh, in 1 John 3, 9, No one born, born again, saved of God, makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you're born of God, if you're a child of God, if you identify God is my Father, then you cannot... John says, make a practice of sinning. And by practice, John means make it, make it part of your life. Uh, continually plan, schedule in, okay, tomorrow, 3 o'clock, sinning time. He's saying that you cannot put sin on your schedule. You cannot surrender to it or, or live for it. Why? Because God's seed is in you, for goodness sake. You've been transformed by the power of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And He's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. And the Spirit will not tolerate slavery to sin. He will not tolerate the rule of sin in your life. So when you sin, the Spirit brings conviction and and discipline and regret and remorse and pain and sorrow. He he, He does this to lead you to confession and repentance to spur you on to in your continual fight against sin. And when, and when you're fighting against the sin in your life, then you are not a slave to sin. Sinning does not make you a slave to sin. Uh, stopping the fight, not fighting against sin, makes you a slave to sin. And Paul says you can't do that. John says you can't do that. And Paul's point in verse 16 is you are either a slave to sin or a slave to God. It's not a matter of bouncing back and forth. We were all, at one time, slaves to sin. We were all born in Adam, back to Romans chapter 5, born into slavery to sin. But when you put your faith in Christ, when you give your life to Christ as your Lord, when you present yourself to Christ, to God, as obedient slaves, you're no longer a slave to sin. And you'll no longer experience eternal death. You are no longer separated from God in this life or in the life to come. Now you may, again, and you will commit sins. But, but Romans 4, 6.14 promises, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin will not rule over you. You will not be a slave to sin because you are under grace. Sin cannot give a, get a lasting foothold in your life because the grace and the presence of God, God's Spirit, God's seed, abides in you, dwells in you, lives in you. John MacArthur put it this way, because of temporary unfaithfulness, sinful disobedience may at times appear to dominate a Christian's life. But a true believer cannot continue indefinitely in disobedience because it is diametrically opposed to his new and holy nature, which cannot indefinitely endure sinful living. A Christian cannot for long endure sinful living. But, and this is what I tried to explain last week, if a Christian is in a state of sinful living, the battle's still going on, but he's given in, He or she will experience the symptoms of slavery to sin. Their fellowship with God will be broken and the joy and satisfaction He provides will be missing. There is no one who is more conflicted and joyless than a Christian living in sin. For the the unbeliever, living in sin is is the norm. That's the way they were born. They know nothing else. They may not, may not even notice there's a problem. Because they, they don't have God's seed abiding in them. So they have no idea of what they're missing. But for the one who's tasted the presence of God in their life, who's experienced the joy of salvation and, and the, the satisfaction of a relationship with God, to, to have that cease, even for a, a limited, a, a short time, causes great spiritual and emotional turmoil. They are, more than any other person can be, torn between who they were, a slave to sin, and who they are in Christ, a slave to God. 
like an addict who's experienced the joy of recovery, but has once again slipped back into their addiction. And this is the heart of the battle uh, against sin. When we get to chapter 7, we'll see this battle more fully described. But, but each and every one of us, I believe, if you've been saved by grace through faith, you've received the, the Holy Spirit, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We all share this common experience of, of fighting against sin. We share this experience of being torn between our, our old self and our, our new selves. This is what Paul describes in verse 15 of Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Uh, this describes the somewhat schizophrenic battle with sin that the believer faces. Sin working with our flesh, our old self, causes us to do the things we, our new self, hates. We're tempted, we struggle with temptation, and sometimes, hopefully more often than not, we don't give in to the temptation. We experience victory over sin, but other times we fail, we fall, we give in to sin. We do what we hate. We lose the battle. But what we need to understand is that in Christ, we will never lose the war. Or, or should I say, God will never lose the war. Because after we sin, He brings conviction and sorrow and regret. And even if it takes time, we, uh, those who are in Christ, will return to our Heavenly Father. We'll confess our sins, and He will be faithful and just and forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that does not describe Slavery to sin, which leads to death. That describes a battle against sin that leads to righteousness. And really, my point is this, really twofold. When you're a Christian and you sin, it doesn't mean you're a slave to sin. Because there's a battle. You know you're not a slave because there's a battle going on. But second, second point, maybe the big point here, it's a warning. If you call yourself a Christian, if you believe somewhere you think you're saved by grace through faith, but find yourself in this continual practice of sin or sins, and there is no battle, you've surrendered, you never had a battle in the first place, then you should be asking yourself, who am I a slave to? Am I a slave to sin or a slave to God? Did I ever truly surrender myself to Jesus Christ? I, I might have uh, accepted Him as my Savior, taken on the fire insurance, didn't want to go to hell. But did I ever present my members as obedient slaves to Christ? If sin is your master, if there's no conviction or battle against sin, then you have reason to doubt whether you truly have ever put your faith in Jesus Christ as He requires. Whether you've trusted Him, not only with your salvation, not only with uh, uh, escaping hell, not only with the forgiveness of your sins, but you've trusted Him with your life. Have you given Him... This is required, by the way. This is part of a trusting in Christ. You, you trust Him completely. You give Him control of who you are and what you do. He becomes, He becomes your Lord and your Master. It fits perfectly with this idea of slavery. 
Because if you're not a slave to God, then you're a slave to sin, which leads to death. And if slavery to sin is where you find yourself, the first and really the only step to get out of that is for you to give your life to Christ fully, to, to, to present your members as servants of righteousness, to repent of and reject sin as your master and submit to God. Willingly enslave yourself to God. Which leads, which verse 16 says, leads to righteousness. When you're saved by grace through faith, when you come under grace, you are, are not only saved from your sin, we've got to get this, you're not only saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death, but you receive, you're given, you're declared uh, righteous. You receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life. To be right before God. You're declared righteous and you're given the power to become who you're declared to be. Now what is that righteous life, that sort of in-between time before you uh, meet Christ and you're fully made righteous? What does that look like? Or should I say, what does slavery in this life, slavery to God, look like? Well, it's the opposite of slavery to sin. Slavery to sin means continual, uh, a practice of continual disobedience to God. But slavery to God means we are slaves of obedience. That's the second point. Now, Paul's writing this letter uh, to believers, to slaves to God, slaves of God in Rome. And so beginning in verse 17, he describes their, their slavery in greater detail. He's just made it clear that everyone is either a slave to sin, uh, disobedience to God, or to God, obedience to God. And now speaking directly to slaves to God in Rome, he writes in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul begins by expressing grace. Now he's shifting. He's talking directly to them in a sense. He expresses gratitude to God that, that these, these Roman Christians have, have crossed over. They've been transformed. They, they've switched masters. They've been saved by grace through faith. They've given their lives. They've presented their, their, their selves as obedient before God. And now they're slaves to obedience. Notice Paul specifically says they became obedient from the heart. The heart describes uh, our mind and will and emotions. It's, it's very similar, the same as when we say this is the heart of the matter or this is the heart, not the physical heart, who we are and what we truly desire. So their obedience was not just from a sense of duty or, or of fear. It wasn't just a matter of fulfilling some religious requirement. It wasn't a checklist. Their obedience came from their desires, from who they were, and who they wanted to become from the heart. And notice what they were obedient to. Paul says it. Paul calls it the standard of teaching. The standard of teaching. The word standard refers to a specific set of teachings or, or teaching. These Roman Christians, like, like those first Christians in the book of Acts, had devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. The, apostles te uh, the, the apostle teaching was the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the things they had learned, the apostles had learned from Christ, and the things they saw in, in Christ's life. Remember, at this time, 
uh, there was no New Testament yet. Paul's writing it at, the, at that moment. He's writing at least Romans. But there were apostles. Those who had been commissioned. Those who had this, this connection, this first-hand, on-the-site connection with Christ. Those who had been commissioned by Christ to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And it's believed that the, that the church in Rome was, was started by Christians who had fled from Jerusalem, who had fled because of persecution. Christians who'd sat under, the Christians for, who in Acts 2.42 had, uh, that says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These were Christians that had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to that standard of teaching. They then took this standard of teaching with them to Rome where they began to meet, where they began to spread the gospel, teaching what they had been taught by the apostles, planting the church in Rome and, and making disciples in Rome. And notice, Romans 6.17 says, they, committed, they were committed disciples. They were committed to the standard of teaching. That word committed means to surrender to, to entrust, to give yourself over to. These believers in Rome were committed from the heart to this standard of teaching. They were committed from the heart to being disciples of Jesus Christ. They were committed from the heart to being slaves, not to sin, but to God. They had a a heartfelt commitment to obey the standard of teaching they had received ultimately from God Himself. And they are a great example for us to follow. Because we also have a, a standard of teaching we've received from God that we need a heartfelt commitment to. We have the Bible. God's revelation of Himself. We have both Old and New Testaments. Complete. And for us, slavery to God means that we are committed to obey this standard of teaching. And what does that look like? Well, that word obedience gives us the answer. The New New Testament word for obedience is hupakuo. It's a compound word for two Greek words. Hupo, which means under, and akuo, which means to hear. So so the word obey is is to, to hear under. Obedience involves listening attentively with a heart of compliance and submission and then obeying what you hear. Being under it. Submitting to it. We must be committed to knowing and obeying the Word of God. And our commitment must be from the heart. Not as a a checklist. Not as uh, some religious duties. Not to earn God's favor. And the question is, do you have a heartfelt commitment to know and obey God's Word. To reading and studying, memorizing, meditating, and applying God's Word to your life. This is at the heart of what it means to be a slave to God. Because a slave must know the commands of his master. And if we're slaves of God, then we must know His Word. For it's in His Word that He gives us His instructions, His teachings that we must come under, that we must hear and come under. We must know what He commands and we must obey what He commands from the heart. Even and especially 
when we don't understand. Or especially when part of you doesn't want to obey. A heartfelt obedience does not mean that every part of us always wants to obey a specific command. Different parts of us are saying things in our lives. Right now I'm on a a diet. And uh, there's parts of me that does not want to be on this diet. It's, It's centered around this area, you know. But then, my, my, this where my pants sit, they're like happy that I'm on a diet because, anyway, no, no, you guys understand. Yeah, right. There's parts of me, but I know, I know in my heart of hearts what's best for me in this area. A heartfelt obedience does not mean that every part of you always wants to obey a specific command. It means that he... That, that we always want to please our Master, God. So even when we don't desire to do something God has commanded, we desire above all else, in that specific instance, we desire above all else to please and glorify God through our obedience to Him. So we might not understand the exact command, but we understand who God is. We understand that God loves us. We understand that God wants our best. And so we willingly obey author of uh, several children's Christian books, Glenda Fulton Davis, puts it well in her poem, It's Not Always Easy. It's not always easy to smile and be nice when we're called to sacrifice. It's not always easy to put others first, especially when tired and feeling our worst. It's not always easy to do the Father's will. It wasn't so easy to climb Calvary's hill. But we, as children, as His children, should learn to obey. Not seeking our own, but seeking His way. It's not always easy to fight the good fight, but it's always good and it's always right. All of us may not always want to obey, but we always want what is right. And when you trust in God, when you're a slave of God, what pleases God and what God says is right is what you heartfelt you have a heartfelt commitment to do. I think Jesus' example in the Garden of Gethsemane, more than any other, demonstrates what this looks like. What it looks like to have a heartfelt commitment to obey God, even when part of you doesn't want to. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, we read of Jesus earnestly praying that God would, in some way, allow Him to escape the cross. Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus, at least on some level, did not want to go to the cross. He, the Holy One of God, did not want uh, the sin of humanity to be placed upon Him. He did not want to experience separation from God. So He prayed for the removal of this cup. But then He added, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will that yours be done. This is the attitude of heartfelt commitment to obedience that we have to cultivate. To subject our wills and our desires, even our hopes and our dreams, to that of God, to our Father in heaven. That is slavery to God. Slavery to obedience. And the the question for each of us is, have you made a commitment to knowing and obeying God? 
the Word of God, His standard of teaching? Do you spend quality time in His Word? Do you attend, do you attend a good Bible-preaching church? Amen. Hallelujah. Here you are. And do you go to Bible studies with other believers where you can learn His Word? Are you memorizing and meditating on the standard of teaching you've received? Do you purpose and plan and pray that God would lead you in the application and obedience of His Word? Sometimes it's that we get principles and we're not exactly sure how those apply to me today. And that's where we just spend time at His feet. Father, Your Word says this. I'm not sure what it means for me at work today. Can you, can you reveal that to me? You have a heartfelt commitment to say and to live, not my will, but yours be done. Because that, that's the beginning of what it means to be a slave to God. That's the beginning of experiencing the, the consequence of slavery to God, which is, from verse 16, righteousness. And Paul then adds the description of slavery to God. Not only are we slaves to obedience, we are slaves to that righteousness. Romans 6.18 And having been set free from sin, so once you're set free from sin, once you're free, you're free indeed. I think we sing a song about this. Freedom for freedom. Did we sing this this morning? It's, it's ringing in my ears. Freedom, we've been set free. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are free. You're free from the power of sin. You then have become slaves of righteousness. You were slaves to sin. Now you are slaves of righteousness. Remember, righteousness means right standing before God. When we give our lives to Christ, we receive a free gift. His righteousness. We are declared righteousness. And we are, from that point forward, righteous before God. We are right before God. When we stand before God in judgment, He will say, you're, you're good because of Christ's righteousness that was given to you. But, we're, but we also, I mean, we're declared righteous. We're counted righteous in that moment. But we also, in that moment, enter into a process of becoming righteous. Because even though you're declared righteous, you're still living in this world in the flesh and you still have struggles and temptations. But you enter into a process of becoming righteous. We become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of becoming who God declares us to be in Christ. That's, that's, that's maybe your mission in life now. Think of it that way. Your mission in life is to become who God has already made you to be to become righteous, to enter into that process, that's your work. And that's a, that's a battle, that's a fight, mostly against sin, the, the other competing thing, the flesh. Now what does this look like? Paul continues in verse 19. I, I, this is a little weird statement, I'll try to explain it. I'm speaking in human, human terms because of your natural limitation. What does he mean by that? Paul takes a moment, it seems, in, in a sense to apologize for this slave-master analogy. I, I, you know, when I, we talk about being slaves, we're not always, that brings up not good feelings sometimes. And so Paul's a little bit ex, uh, apologizing for that because, because this illustration of slavery is limited. There are other possibly more appropriate analogies for our relationship with God. In fact, in chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 7, he's going to switch from the slave-master relationship 
to the husband-wife relationship. And these are not the same, in case you're wondering. So Paul is saying that because of our natural limitations, our inability to understand spiritual reality completely, he needs this illustration, the slave-master analogy, for us to understand our former relationship with sin and at least part of our current relationship with God. It's not the full thing. It's not the full-blown understanding of our relationship with God, but it's part of it. Paul continues, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, he's using slavery because it clearly illustrates our relationship with to sin. We present our members, our, our body parts, as slaves to impurity, which is physical and moral uncleanness, and to lawlessness, violation of the, the, the commands of God, uh, wickedness and unrighteousness. We willingly surrender ourselves to impurity and lawlessness to sin. And the result is the consequence of doing that, the consequence of being a, a slave to sin. As you give in to sin, this just leads you down a path to more and more sin. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Sin does not stand still. It grows and expands. When sin is our master, we continue to fall deeper into darkness and depravity. Slavery to sin results in ever-increasing deterioration. I should not write words that I can't say. That, that would, that's, would be like pastoral 101 preaching. Okay, You guys got the word. I'm not going to try to get And depravity. I was trying to get a lot of D's in there so you guys could get the, the idea. When you're a slave to sin, you're on this downward spiral. As you present yourself to sin, sin impacts your character. It's, it's working on your heart. We see this all the time in the lives of people around us, maybe in our own lives, sometimes even in the lives of those who call themselves Christians. They have a certain, uh, even biblical standard of right and wrong. But then something changes. And they choose to violate their own standard. They choose to sin. And you might think this would lead them to sorrow and confession and repentance. But for those who are slaves to sin even if they're calling themselves a Bible-believing Christian, it leads to justifying their sin and changing their standards. What was once uh, wrong now becomes right. For example, and I've seen this happen. I'm not just making this up. Someone's married and they they have a biblical standard that, that sex belongs in marriage. That having sex with someone you're not married to is a sin, period. But then there's a change. Their husband or their wife leaves them. They get a divorce and they they start dating again. They sleep with someone who they're not married to. They violate their own standard. And instead of confession and repentance, they turn to justification. They turn to moving the line, changing the standard. What was once wrong in their own minds becomes needed and even right. So offering our bodies to sin leads to impurity and to an ever-increasing cycle of sin or wickedness. Being a slave to sin means you become more and more sinful. Maybe not outwardly, but the heart especially. And the same and yet opposite principle is true when you're slaves to God. 
Verse 19 continues. So, so he's talked about the, the results. The, as, you, as you present your members of slaves to impurity and lawlessness, it just continues on and it grows. So, now that you're free from sin, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now that we're no longer slaves to sin, we're no longer presenting our members to sin, we're no longer under the power of sin, we can now move out and and present our members as obedient slaves to righteousness, to the, the condition that is acceptable to God, to the condition of who you were declared to be by God. In Christ, you're accounted righteous right before God. And what Paul is saying is now you must present your bodies to living, to being what God has declared you to be. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Be who you are in Christ. In Christ, God has declared you, uh, He's counted you as righteous right before Him. Now present your members, live your life as slaves to righteousness. Don't act based on who you were or who you sometimes look like a slave to sin. Instead, and if I can use, go back to verse 15 and use Paul's word there, consider or reckon yourself a slave to righteousness. Believe you're a slave to righteousness and live based on that belief. Act it out. Which leads to sanctification. Sanctification, this is a word we'll talk about little bit now and in the upcoming weeks. It's a process. It's that in-between time. It's you've been declared righteous when you come to Christ, and eventually you'll be fully righteous when you see Him in glory. And this process uh, of becoming righteous, that's the word sanctification captures that. It's a process where we grow in righteousness, growing to be more like Christ. So when we were slaves to sin, we presented our members to sin, and we grew in being sinners. Now we're slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. And when we present our members to righteousness, to right living before God, we grow in righteousness. We become more and more like Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to be a slave to God, a slave to obedience and righteousness, to present your members to righteousness? Again, it involves living out who God's declared you to be. It involves knowing God's Word so you know who He's declared you to be. And so by being a slave to righteousness means that each and every day you recognize it to be true. You recognize who you are in Christ. You reckon it so. And as you face difficulty and temptation, you choose to be who God's declared you to be, not who you once were. You choose to live righteous before Him. Let me give just, I mean, there are a zillion and one examples of this what this should look like. Let me just give you one. Suppose someone uh, were to say something negative about you in front of others. You in that moment have the opportunity to offer yourself as a slave to God uh, to obedience and righteousness or you can sin. You could let your anger and your desire to defend yourself be in charge to take control. You could let your feelings of pride take over and and respond by presenting your mouth and your tongue and maybe your fists to sin. 
you could respond with a raised voice and harsh words, possibly attacking the other person to shift the focus away from what they've said about you. That would be acting like a slave to sin. But instead, you could remember and reckon who you are in Christ. That you are right before God. That's who you are. That's who God says you are. And that your greatest desire is to please your heavenly Father. Even though there's part of you welling up. That part of you. But there's other part of you wants to please God. That God's seed abides, abides in you and God's seed will empower you. His Holy Spirit will empower you. And that responding with harsh words or a raised voice is not who you truly are. That's a mistake we make, oftentimes. I think we, we teach this sometimes. Who you are when you're alone is who you really are. Who you are when you sin and nobody can see you, that's who you really are. Not so. The Bible teaches the opposite. That is not who you are. You are who you are when you're worshiping God, when you're in God's Word, when you're feeling the love for others. That's who you truly are. Now you need to live who that is. You need to live pleasing your master. You might even realize, back to the illustration, you you could even realize that that this person, what he pointed out about you, albeit in a negative way, not in front of others, please, may have a ring of truth. That he or she saw a flaw that you really should deal with. And instead of turning on them in anger, you could respond in righteousness. In obedience to God's word, which in Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You could make it worse, or you could obey God. As a slave to God, a slave to obedience and righteousness, you could and should respond presenting your mouth and your tongue to obedience and righteousness and, and give a soft answer. You might simply say, I appreciate you pointing that out. It's something I'm trying to work on and, and move on. That's just one example of what it might look like to live your life as a slave to God, a slave to obedience and righteousness. Now next week, uh, we hopefully will finish Romans chapter 6. We're getting close. We'll come to see that, that what results of slavery to sin, what the results, more results, I would say, of, of slavery to sin and slavery to God will bring. We'll explore in greater detail, as I said, this idea of sanctification, this process of becoming who you are in Christ. But as we conclude, and as Tom's going to come and lead us in communion, I want to pray for us. I, I, I want to ask God to empower us this week to present our members to Him as instruments of righteousness, of obedience, to respond to the world around us out of obedience to God and righteousness before God. Spending time in His Word, knowing and obeying Him. Spending time reckoning this truth that you are right before God. And then living based on that truth. I want to pray that we'll embrace and live out our slavery to God. Lord, we come to You now and we, we, we trust You. We believe that when we were saved by grace through faith, when we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you declared us righteous. That's who we are in Christ, Lord. I pray that you would empower us to live that out. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to to live righteously before you, to obey your word. Help us to know and obey your word. Give us a heart for your word. 
a love for your word. Not just to, to reading and studying and memorizing it, that's great, but also applying it in our lives, applying it in the difficult times when we're tempted to sin. Lord, help us to remain uh, your children enslaved to you as our master in Christ's name. Amen.